First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you turn with me to the book of Zephaniah? Zephaniah. If you do not know where Zephaniah is, I'm sure that you are not alone. And so uh, this is where the table of contents in the front of your Bibles can be your friend. And uh, do not be afraid uh, to use it. As you're making your way there, we are a little over halfway through this study of the 12 minor prophets that we're calling God at the mic. Uh, We've been looking at one of them each week, and we've been discovering that even though these books are called the minor prophets, that they do indeed have a major message for us in them. Uh, With each of these books, we want to listen in as God is at the mic, and He is speaking directly to us. And today, He wants to speak directly to us, especially about who He is as we study this book of Zephaniah together. If you look with me at the very first verse of the book, this is how Zephaniah begins. The word of the Lord, which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I love the very first phrase in this book, the word of the Lord. If you hold your finger there and turn over to the very end of the book, to the last verse in chapter 3, you'll notice that the last three words of this book are, says the Lord. And so this book begins and ends with a reminder that what we are reading here is what God has said, that this is His Word and that it will come to pass precisely as He has said it. Of course, that is true with all of the Word of God. But as with all of Scripture, God's Word is spoken to us and written down for us through a human author, in this case, the prophet Zephaniah. Uh, We don't know uh, an awful lot about Zephaniah, except that he appears to be of royal descent. It says there in verse 1 that he is the great-grandson, the great-great-grandson of Hezekiah. Most people believe that's a reference to King Hezekiah. And if that is true, it would make Zephaniah the only prophet in the Bible to have royal blood. Zephaniah tells us that he ministered during the reign of King Josiah, the king of Judah. Now, you might notice that unlike the last couple of books that we have studied, there is no mention of any king of Israel in that opening verse. And that is because by this time, the northern kingdom of Israel has already been judged by the Lord. They have been defeated by the Assyrians, and they are now no more. And only the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, is left standing. The date that this book was written is somewhere during the reign of King Josiah, somewhere between 640 B.C. and 609 B.C. Most likely, the book was written in the earlier part of King Josiah's reign, and we know that because you might recall that King Josiah began to reign when he was only eight years old. He was just a boy. But we find out in Second Chronicles that when he got to be a young man, when he was about 20 years of age, that he began to make some 
uh, very serious reforms. He began to get rid of some of the idols that the people were worshiping and started to turn some things around. And since Zephaniah does not reference that, it's likely that that reforming work of King Josiah had not yet begun. But in the end, we know that the reforms that King Josiah brought about was really a case of too little, too late for the people of Judah. Because as a whole, the people of Judah had fallen so far away from the Lord that despite his reforms and despite Zephaniah's warnings here, they persisted in their sin. And about 50 years after this book was written, in 586 BC, the Babylonians would come in under King Nebuchadnezzar and they would carry the people of Judah and Jerusalem away to captivity where they would be for the next 70 years after that. We won't spend too long on chapters 1 and 2 of Zephaniah today, but a summary of these chapters, basically it contains the announcement of God's coming judgment against his people in Judah and in Jerusalem. You can see that starting in verse 4 of chapter 1, God says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place. The names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests, those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops, those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but who also swear by Milcom, who is a false god, those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of him. So the Lord says that he's about to judge his people Judah. Here he says because of their idolatry, their worship of false gods. Over in chapter 3, he gives a few more of the reasons why that judgment was coming. He talks about how their leaders were corrupt, about how their prophets and even their priests were no better, and they were polluting the very sanctuary of the Lord. And so again, judgment was coming, and judgment did come uh, just a short time after these words were written. But as with many of the other prophets we have studied, this judgment that was coming would not just be limited to Judah, to the people of God, but it would also fall on all the other nations as well. If you look in chapter 2, starting in verse 4, Zephaniah chooses representative nations from all four points of the compass. And so there he begins with a statement about how God was going to judge the Philistines. The Philistines were located to the west of Judah. But then he says God was going to also judge Moab and Ammon, who were located to the east. Then he said God was going to judge Cush, which is a reference to Egypt in the south. And then finally he says God would judge Assyria up in the north. And so to all nations, those in the west, the east, the south, and the north, the judgment of God was coming upon God's people, but upon all the nations as well. And Zephaniah uses language that we've already encountered in our study of the minor prophets, the language of the day of the Lord. And we especially saw that phrase used in the prophet Joel. And just like Joel, Zephaniah uses that phrase, the day of the Lord, in a couple of different senses. He uses it to refer to a near day of the Lord that was about to come, and that did come in 586 BC when the Babylonians came in. But as you read through this book, in several places it seems as though Zephaniah is speaking about a day of the Lord that would far surpass that day. 
a day of the Lord that would fall upon all nations, a day of the Lord's judgment that would be cataclysmic in nature and in scope. And I believe that he's referring to that final coming day of the Lord when the Bible tells us the Lord Jesus will come to judge the earth. And so like many of the minor prophets we've studied so far, the book of Zephaniah is certainly about God's judgment of sin, his judgment of Judah, and his judgment of the nations. But this book of Zephaniah is not entirely about God's judgment. In fact, Zephaniah ends with a stunningly beautiful section of hope and encouragement for the people of God, starting in chapter 3, verse 8. God begins to speak to his faithful remnant, a group of people who, unlike those that were living around them, were faithfully seeking to follow the Lord, and he wants to encourage them, and he wants to tell them that he is going to watch over them, and he wants to tell them that no matter what would come in the near term, that better days were coming in the future. So as we prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table in a few moments, let's read this final section of Zephaniah and think about it together. Zephaniah 3, starting in verse 8, God says to this remnant, Therefore wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger. All the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. There's the judgment of the Lord. But he tells them to wait for that to happen because this is what's going to happen next. Verse 9, For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language, and they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed one, shall bring my offering. In that day, you shall not be shamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people. It reminds me what Jesus said, that the meek will inherit the earth and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy, the King of Israel. The Lord is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. Verse, four, verse 16, In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear. Zion, let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God in your midst, the Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly who are among you, to whom its reproach is a burden. Behold, at that time I will deal with all who afflict you. I will save the lame and gather those who were driven out. I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they were put to shame. At that time I will bring you back, even at the time I gather you. For I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I return your captives before your eyes. 
you know, hopefully we have seen in our study of the minor prophets so far why in God's sovereignty these books are in our Bibles. There are a lot of reasons why uh, we need to study these 12 books. Uh, There are a lot of things in these books that God, I believe, wants to say to our culture today. But you know, one of the reasons why we need to study these books called the Minor Prophets is that these books help us to really see what God is like. These books teach us who God really is, not who our culture likes to think God is, but who God actually is. And so with the brief time we have this morning to consider this passage, here's what I want us to do. I want us to think together today about how we view the Lord. And first, I want us to look very quickly at just a few other ways that people sometimes view the Lord, ways that are either incorrect or at best incomplete. And after we've done that, I want us to look at a couple of the ways that Zephaniah tells us here that we need to view our God. First off, when we think about how people view God, some people view him as a snoozing God. As a God who is indifferent, a God who does not care or pay attention at all to anything that we are doing or anything that is happening in the world. You know, in fact, the people in Zephaniah's day thought that way about God. Turn back to chapter 1 and verse 12. This is what Zephaniah writes. He says, It shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who are settled in complacency, who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. That phrase, settled in your complacency, was a phrase that was used to uh, picture a, a glass of wine that had been set out too long and was sitting there in its sediments and had even developed a layer of crust around it. That's what God is saying about the hearts of these people, that they were crusty hearts. They were complacent hearts. They were indifferent hearts, and they also thought that God was indifferent towards them. Uh, they, they even said, that to, said to themselves, as we see here, God's not going to do anything good, and God's not going to do anything bad. In other words, he's not going to do anything at all. And he doesn't care. He doesn't pay attention. He is indifferent to what is happening in this world. And you know, there are a lot of people today who, even if we wouldn't verbalize it that way, really think the same thing. There are many people today, if you ask them, do you believe in God? They would say, oh yes, I believe in God. But in terms of their day-to-day life, they do not think that God does anything good or anything bad. They don't think that God is active in their life or in the lives of those around them or in the world. And so day-to-day, even though they would say they believe in God, they live like practical atheists who do not bring God's presence or God's working into their thinking about their lives or about the world. Some people view God that way, totally indifferent, snoozing, snoring away. A second way that some people view God is like this. They see him as a seething God, as an angry God who is perpetually mad at us for how we are all living and cannot wait to wipe us all away. 
And certainly it must be said that for those who want to see God in that kind of a light, there is plenty of material to be found, perhaps especially in the minor prophets, that could be used to argue that that's how God is. These books, including the book of Zephaniah, they do speak about the wrath of God. They do speak about the fierceness of God's anger towards sin and towards sinners. And church, we do need a place in our theology of God to understand that because God is a holy and just God, that he, is, uh, he is, ha- does have a righteous reaction called wrath to our sin. We do need to understand what the New Testament says as well, that the day of the wrath of God is coming upon all those who suppress the truth in righteousness. That's what Romans 1 says. That day of wrath is coming for all those who have refused to trust in Christ, all those who have disobeyed the gospel. John chapter 3 does say that for those who do not believe in the Son of God, that the wrath of God abides on them. And so all of that is true. But it is also true that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It is also true that God desires that those who are lost would repent and would turn to him and be forgiven and receive his grace. And it's also true, as we'll talk more in just a moment about this, that those of us who have trusted in Christ are no longer under the wrath of God because Jesus Christ has endured the wrath of God on our behalf. That's why Paul told the Thessalonians that we have not been appointed to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. But nonetheless, some people want to fixate on one attribute of God to the exclusion of all of his other attributes, to think of him as being perpetually moody, angry, and seething. Of course, some folks and perhaps many more folks have swung the pendulum so far to the other side that they prefer to see God, number three, as a sappy God, as a God who is not seething, but a God who is sappy, a God who is mushy, a God who is lax, who would never judge anybody because in their minds, God is more like Santa or like a sweet elderly grandparent uh, who would never again judge them and uh, never have anything to say about the way that they're living their lives. And there are many people in our culture today who prefer to view God in that kind of a light because that kind of a God will never make any demands upon you. And that kind of a God will never call you to change anything. And so for those folks, their theme verse in the Bible is 1 John 4, 8, where it says, God is love. And of course, that's true. God is love. God loves with a deeper and wider love than we can possibly imagine, but he's not love as we define love. He's love as he defines love. And the Bible is what defines for us what it means when it says God is love. And so we cannot define love in such a way that it contradicts any of the other things that the Bible tells us about God, that he is just, that he is holy, and all the rest. Those are just a few of the ways people sometimes view God, again, as either snoozing or as seething or as sappy. But at the end of Zephaniah, in the passage that we read a moment ago, we encounter God as he really is. And first off, the God that we meet in Zephaniah is a God who is a saving God. 
a saving God. Look with me at Zephaniah 3, verses 14 and 15 again. It says, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why are we supposed to shout and sing and be glad? It's because of what verse 15 says. The Lord has taken away your judgments and he has cast out your enemy. Now, how did the Lord do that? How did he take away their judgments and take away their punishment? Well, interpreters say there's a variety of things that Zephaniah could have meant by that. He could have been referring to the near future and how the Lord would take away their judgments and bring them back from captivity. He could have been talking about things that had happened in their past and the time of the Exodus, when God took away their bondage and led them out of Egypt. And you might recall that they put the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorpost of their house, and the angel of death passed over them because of the blood that was on the door. But either way, Either way, as one person put it, all of this points to these two twin truths. God is, on the one hand, a just God who must judge our sin. And on the other hand, he is a gracious, merciful God who has found a way to pay for our sins so that we could be forgiven and saved. And ultimately, of course, how did God take away our judgments? How did God take away their judgments? Ultimately, he did that through his son, Jesus Christ. The prophet Isaiah puts it like this. What wonderful words for us to have in our hearts as we get ready to go to the Lord's table. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, that is on Christ, the iniquity of us all. You see, when we look at the cross, we can see that both the person who says that God is only seething, that he's only angry, and the person who says that God is only sappy, he's only love, are both wrong. The God that we see when we look at the cross is a God who is both just and merciful. We see a God who does not look the other way and ignore our sin or sweep it under the rug. We see a God who judges sin, who treats it with the utmost seriousness. But we also see a God who's so merciful and so gracious and so loving that he came himself to pay for the sin that we deserved to pay for. He has made a way to be both just towards sin and gracious towards sinners. And that way is the cross. As we think today, church, about all that God has done to save us, first of all, let's praise him for our current salvation. God tells us in verse 14 to sing and to shout and to rejoice and to be glad. And church, how can we do anything else? When you think about what a great salvation Christ has won for us, the salvation that's pictured at this table, how can we do anything else? I love how one person put it. When you think about this great salvation, the only appropriate response is to throw a party. And we understand, as he put it, that we were deservedly in the very crosshairs of God's judgment. Because that wrath was poured out on Christ instead of on us.
There is no proper response other than celebration. So we praise God for our current salvation, but also we trust God for our final salvation. You see, while the words that Zephaniah wrote in chapter 3 certainly speak to this Jewish remnant who would later be delivered from exile, they certainly speak even more so to we who have been delivered from bondage through faith in Jesus Christ. But there's some language that you read here that really are, 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 it's talking about things that we have not even experienced yet. There are things that still lie in the future, even for us. If you look in verse 15, he says, one of the reasons we need to shout and sing is that the King of Israel, the Lord, is in our midst. Now we know that when Jesus came, of course, the King was in our midst, wasn't he? He came and made his tabernacle and his dwelling among us. We know that also the Spirit of God has been given to us. And in that sense, the King is in our midst. But one day we read in Revelation that God will come and make his dwelling among us and we will forever be with the King. He will always be in our midst and that day is still to come. We read also in verse 13, these words, he says, the remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. For they shall feed their flocks and lie down and no one shall make them afraid. So he's speaking about a day that's to come when the people of God will do no unrighteousness. Has that day come yet? No, it has not. We know that we still stumble and fall. But the day is coming, according to God's word, when the people of God will do no unrighteousness at all. When there will be no deceit that will come from our lips. The Bible says when we see him, we will be like him. That is the future and final salvation that God has promised to us. And church, listen, because we know that day is coming, the day when he will gather, like he says here, all of his people together, and we will worship and serve the Lord as we were always intended to do. He says in verse 16, these three powerful words, do not fear. You know, I read that this week and I thought about, again, everything we've been seeing on TV every day this week. I know that we prayed about it earlier, but it is so easy when you turn on the TV or you look on your phone and you see what has taken place, one nation invading another. It is so easy even for the people of God to have fear and anxiety to well up in our hearts because, again, you start to wonder and think about what's going to happen next. How's the United States going to respond to this? What is China going to do? Are they about to invade? What is going to happen with Iran? What is going to happen with North Korea? Where is all of this heading? Are we on the brink of World War III? And it's just easy for your mind to begin to go down that train of thought. You know, I've found, and again, I know we need to, we need to be apprised of what's happening in the world, but I've found, you know, the more I watch the news, the more I tend to be afraid. But the more I read the Bible and the more I talk to God, the less afraid I am. Because when I read the Bible, I'm reminded of who is really in charge. I'm reminded of where everything is headed and who wins in the end. I'm reminded that there is a day of a final and full salvation that is coming when our king will rule and reign on this earth. And when I think about that, I remember the words we read earlier from Psalm 27. 
The Lord is my light and my salvation. What do I have to be afraid of? In Zephaniah, we see a God who is a mighty, saving God. But we also see this, and I think this is so beautiful, church. He's not only a saving God, he's also a singing God. Zephaniah 3, 17 tells us so. This is one of the most stunning verses in the whole Bible. It says, the Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. You know, the image here is of a a mother or a father in the delivery room at the hospital. How many have been there one time in your life? Every parent, every grandparent, you remember that time seeing uh, that baby boy, that baby girl for the very first time? That's the image here. Uh, I love how it says he will quiet you in his love. The New American Standard Bible puts that a little differently. It says that he will be quiet in his love. And I think that's the idea That as you think about even looking at that brand new baby boy or baby girl, there's just a wonder there. There's a silent amazement and wonder at this wonderful gift that God has given to you. And as you look at the face of that child, there is a joy that wells up in your heart. And what it says here is that it wells up in the heart of God and he will rejoice over you with singing. The the, the word there actually means with loud singing. You know, one of the things I remember growing up was listening to my dad sing. And sometimes he would go and get his guitar and and play that, but other times he would just sing. And my dad was a fan of Peter, Paul, and Mary. Any Peter, Paul, and Mary fans who are here? Right? And so he would sing us some of those Peter, Paul, and Mary songs, right? Like Puff the Magic Dragon and Blowing in the Wind and Lemon Tree and all the others. And, and I know my father-in-law sang some of those very same songs to Megan and to her brother and sister. And so we've grown up with those. So we sing some of those same songs to our kids and, and others as well. But, you know, that's one of the memories that I have as I think back to my childhood, as I I can still remember and hear in my mind the voice of my father singing over us. I wonder, friend, when you think about your heavenly father, can you hear him singing over you? Is this one of the images that you have in your mind when you think about God, that he is a singing God who loves to sing over you, his child? And I'm afraid that for many believers, that is not actually the case. I'm afraid that for many believers, we just don't think that way about God. We know that God loves us and we read it in his word, but we don't always feel like it. And sometimes when we think about God, we just think, you know, I must just be kind of a constant disappointment to him. And he's probably just tired of hearing about my sin and my struggles. And he's probably too busy for me. He's probably got some more important things, you know, like Ukraine to deal with. And so what are my problems? You know, the things that are going on in my life. And then for some believers, like we talked about earlier, some believers, I I think, feel like God is angry with them all the time. You know, that he's like leaning over the rail in heaven with the hammer in his hand. And he's just waiting for you to mess up again so he can hammer you down again. Sometimes we think that way. And you know, sometimes the, 
the relationship that we had with our own earthly father growing up can really influence the way we think about our heavenly father. But our God is far better than any earthly father. He is a perfect heavenly father. And child of God, he is not waiting to bring the hammer down upon you because the Bible says he has already brought the hammer down upon Christ at the cross. His wrath has been poured out. The price for our sin has already been paid. And so we are no longer under the wrath of God if we are in Christ, if we've received his forgiveness. And so how does he feel about us? This passage tells us. He loves us as his son or as his daughter. He takes us up in his arms. He's literally singing over us with joyful songs. He's singing about this remnant of Israel who have come home or would one day come home and would forever be his. Well, the same thing has happened with us. Because of God's grace, we who are far away from him have been brought home. And so church, listen, we need to make room in our theology for this picture of God that Zephaniah gives us, a picture of a singing God. If the God that we worship is a God who we can never imagine singing over us, then something is wrong with our conception of God. Maybe you remember in Luke 15, Jesus told three stories about the lost being saved and how God the Father responded to that when that happened. You remember the first story was about a shepherd who lost a sheep. And he left the 99 and he went after the one sheep. And when he brought that one sheep back, here's what the shepherd said. He said, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep, which was lost. The second story Jesus told was about that woman who lost that coin. And she got out her broom and she swept the house and she searched all over the house. And when she found that coin that was lost, this is what she did. It says, when she found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, rejoice with me for I found the peace which I lost. And then Jesus doesn't leave us in the dark. He tells us that this is a picture of the way heaven responds when one sinner turns to Christ. He says, likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then in the last story that Jesus told, probably the one we're most familiar with, the story of the prodigal son. A boy who goes to his dad and asks for his inheritance early. And then he goes off and he wastes all of it with ungodly living and finally he hits rock bottom. Can anybody relate to that? Has that ever happened in anyone's life? And when he hits rock bottom, he comes to his senses, the Bible says, and he says, I need to go back home to my father's house. And so he thinks maybe he'll just let me be a servant in his house when I get back home. But as soon as he starts to walk down the driveway to his father's home, his dad gets up and runs down the path to meet him. And this is what the father says. What a picture of God's love. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. And then at the end of the story, you remember when the older brother was mad about what the father had done? Jesus 
in his story, says, this is what the father said to the older son. It was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. What, what do all three of these stories have in common? All three of these stories give us a picture of the heart of our heavenly father. They give us the picture of a God who rejoices when one who is lost is found, when one comes home again. There is joy in the Father's heart. Or as Zephaniah would put it, he is singing over us. That's what I believe God wants to say to us today. If you're here and you know Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, if we have come home because of the grace of God, he's saying to you, my child, just listen for my voice. I am singing over you. You know, as we get ready to come to the table of the Lord, there's one more time in the Bible that I want us to listen and hear God singing to us. And that's the very night that Jesus and his disciples took this meal for the very first time. Because Matthew tells us that right after they took this meal, they walked outside, and this is what they did. Matthew 26, 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. We know what happened that night. That night on the Mount of Olives in the garden called Gethsemane is when they came and arrested Jesus. That night was the night of his trial. That next morning they flogged him and beat him and spit on him. And the next morning by nine o'clock in the morning he was hanging on a cross for you and for me. And so church, don't miss this. Don't miss what that verse says. That literally as your king, as your God was on the way to the cross to die for you, he was singing. The Bible says that for the joy that was before him, the joy of his sons and daughters who would be redeemed, the joy of us coming home, Jesus endured the cross. And he sang about it. 